Hello and welcome to CityWire Selector Podcast. Let's talk about ESG. I'm Margarita Girakosian, news editor, and joining me today is Lisa Bovelong, head of ESG and sustainability at Impact Asset Management. Lisa, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. One of the issues I was very interested in is the whole corporate lobbying debate. Um, So obviously we will have some environmental regulations coming in later next year. And one of those areas that are quite murky at the moment is corporate lobbying. So what do you think about it and how can you uh, navigate these challenges? Yes, absolutely. It is an area that is uh, fairly murky. And I think when we're looking at... uh, sort of the regulations like uh, the EU Green Taxonomy, for example, which uh, is providing a very clear division into the green and the brown um, sectors and activities, the sort of good and the bad, uh, this can quite quickly become a target of lobbying because no one wants to be a bad company or bad sector in a, in a formal classification system. And we have seen particularly the uh, European chemical sector companies at the forefront of lobbying for their inclusion into the green taxonomy. I'm not very, very surprised about this because the chemical sector is already the sector that is most active and pays most euros for lobbying in Europe. But it's interesting because it's not just companies lobbying, it's been governments as well. So essentially rallying for their leading industries. For example, Belgium and France have been arguing for gas utilities being a transition energy type, of a nuclear power being a low carbon energy type to be included in the EU green taxonomy. So I think partly because of these pressures and this lobbying, the brown aspect of the EU green taxonomy has been slightly toned down for now. But I think in terms of the sort of solutions to to this, I think lobbying will always exist. It is inevitable in some ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the key for lobbying is improved transparency. Right now, lobbying activities and lobbying money spent are often unveiled by, for example, non-profit organizations Mm -hmm. that are deeply and fundamentally investigating it. Like, for example, the influence map, instead of, uh, uh, you know, being information that is openly and transparently accounted for and available for everyone. And uh, it's good that you mentioned Influence Map because I looked at that report as well. And one interesting takeaway from that was specifically the fact that certain car manufacturers and all gas industry uh, associations are trying to delay their compliance with environmental regulations uh, using COVID-19 as an excuse. So is that something of a concern to you as head of ESG and sustainability at the firm? Absolutely, it could be. Um, And uh, I think... It is interesting that they have already unveiled something so quickly that is relating Mm. to COVID-19. I'm sure we will, over the years and in the aftermath of uh, the COVID-19 crisis, all kinds of other things will be be revealed uh, as well. But those are certainly things that uh, I think uh, investors and broader society will will want to know as well. So transparency really is very key there, I would say. And how do you deal with the whole corporate lobbying situation uh, in your position? And when you look at the funds that impacts runs, for example, are you looking for any alternative sources of data, for example, or how do you approach the theme from the investment perspective, let's say? 
Well, lobbying is very interesting because it tends to be the companies that um, are not very well aligned to a transition to a more sustainable economy who would be very fiercely and actively lobbying because they are trying to lobby for status quo. So I think uh, Impact's situation of being an investor and really focusing on companies and activities that are very well aligned and in many cases enabling uh, the transition to a more sustainable economy, it tends not to be a very large problem for, for our types of companies. It is really the sort of uh, the types of activities and companies that are trying to fiercely defend and keep the status quo that are clearly most active within lobbying. Mm -hmm. um, one of the themes I was looking at as well is about the most commonly hold stocks uh, in portfolios because one of the um, highlights i think is that mega caps are massively favored in sustainable products or the ones that are identifying themselves as such so aren't we overlooking some small and mid-cap names that might not be just catching up fast enough in terms of reporting to their larger peers absolutely i think that's uh, that's absolutely the case and of course it is um i would say there are a couple of things going on here uh, First of all, why why is it why is it such a why are these mega caps so well represented in uh, in sustainability funds and indices etc. One element would be that um, you have uh, the sort of ESG rating link with company size. So larger companies often have more, for example, developed sustainability reporting and disclosures, and can hence score better on ESG ratings that are. Uh, very heavily mostly focused on disclosures and these types of companies then often find their ways into especially the passive type ESG indices but our point would be that great ESG scores doesn't necessarily make companies great what uh, in our view matters most in, is what companies do how well are their business models and their activities aligned again to the uh, uh, transition to a more sustainable economy the stronger that alignment the smaller is the risk of them being disrupted by changes to policy, to consumer preferences or, or technology. But I would also say that um, uh, there's also a risk with the, the sort of the concentration of the investment into these mega caps is that there is a tendency of the ESG darlings and sort of the crowded trades. Mm -hmm. So these recent darlings have been the large caps, especially in the technology space where we actually in many cases see that they have significant ESG risks and uh, not all of them, of course, but many of them in their business models and in their practices. But I also do think that the sort of large cap effect here is exacerbated by the fact that a large portion of the ESG investments today are going into passive funds, which are investing more into the companies that are already doing well and are already very large constituents of indices. It's kind of a spiral in many ways. As an investor in this space, I would say that really key is uh, a discipline regarding valuation. Impacts has been investing in companies that enable um, this transition to a more sustainable economy for more than 20 years. And we have seen lots of hype and even bubbles over the years in the sort of high growth environmental markets, including the solar boom in 2007, the fuel cell boom a few years later and for example, the 3D printing boom. 
So there's a lot of excitement that then fades over time. And I think investors need to be very, very disciplined about valuation when considering these sort of exciting growth markets at the moment really being the sort of large cap tech names. Mm -hmm. But I think finally, when identifying, uh, trying to identify really the, the best uh, opportunities uh, and the best investment um, areas are really to look at the, uh, um, the sort of enablers and the solutions for a transition uh, of a more sustainable economy of the future, of tomorrow. So the best alpha generation opportunities are in the companies that are still smaller, that are less understood by the market today, and that are providing important solutions to unmet societal needs, and uh, that will possibly become the large caps of the future. But this, of course, requires deep fundamental analysis of the companies and, and the markets uh, to, to, be, to be identified. Mm -hmm. And can you give me an example of uh, such smaller companies uh, that can be uh, more resilient, let's say? Absolutely. So, uh, for example, one area that we find very interesting would be, and let's say it is a real trend that is taking place, it's a transition that is taking place, and that is in the, in the space of uh, the transport and uh, the electrification of the transport area. So um, an area there would be, for example, investment into companies that are providing the really critical components of the electrification of transport systems. And it is understanding what these critical components are in various stages of the, of the, of the process and the value chain of, uh, of uh, electric vehicle manufacturing, but also not just what are the most critical components, but also the ones that have, for example, relatively high barriers to entry, for example, through high levels of innovation and specialization, which uh, really make out the best possible investments. In other words, you have these great uh, transition going on uh, and, um, and, and identifying critical parts uh, going into uh, into the value chain uh, in, in a trend or transition like this. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, for example, of manufacturers of uh, transducers, which uh, is a device converting energy from one form to another, which, um, you know, of these transducers, you would need hundreds, if not thousands of them in each and every electric vehicle. Sensors would be uh, another type of technology that are absolutely critical for electric vehicles. And so when you have thousands of these types of components that need to go into each electric vehicle uh, for all of the brands of electric vehicle, this is the kind of approach we like. In other words, that you have a critical component, the picks and shovels really underpinning a high growth industry that is in itself well aligned to transition to a more sustainable transport system. Mm -hmm. um, and if we talk, for example, about specific companies that impacts holds, um, can you give examples of those that fall under the category of transitioning uh, of the electrification of transport? Yes, so we can't really talk about any specific names, mm -hmm. uh, but there are uh, companies, for example, in Germany, who are mm -hmm. specifically manufacturing these types of uh, transducers. They are very pure play specialized companies not necessarily companies that uh, are very broadly known, but for every, largely every single electric vehicle that is, uh, that is manufactured, uh, the components of this particular company is required and hundreds, if not thousands of them, of them into, into all of them. 
these are really the sort of uh, ideal scenarios. We're not, we're less interested in taking a view on which uh, electric vehicle will be the, uh, the sort of uh, absolute winner of, uh, uh, of this uh, transition, but rather uh, participate um, as a, again, sort of a picks, the picks and shovels uh, uh, and components that underpin the growth of this market. Going back to your point about uh, the ESG darlings in the tech space, so what are the dangers uh, of that ESG investors are facing in terms of picking companies in that specific area? So what is that that you don't like about the hype uh, around the sector? Well, I think on the one hand, you have that sort of uh, very, uh, very much a, a crowding of, uh, of trade. And so it means that, um, you know, if there is... Uh, if there is something that uh, doesn't quite work work out in, in those companies, there will be uh, you know lots of uh, lots of the same types of investors who are holding these these companies and might react very similarly at the same time, and that's of course the case with uh, a lot of the, the sort of passive investments as well. Um, so I think that's definitely one structural issue to to think about, but I do think that. Um, for many of the larger tech names, for example, uh, there are many practices that, uh, that are still very immature uh, at best. Um, and uh, we do think that uh, at some stage, the companies will, not again, all technology companies in the world, but without going into any specific names, we do think that some of the big darlings of, uh, uh, of the technology space will face uh, disruption at some stage probably primarily from a, a regulatory or policy uh, perspective, uh, whether it is relating to, for instance, their approach to, um, to taxes, their approach to uh, labor management uh, and, uh, and the like. Mm -hmm. uh, when we spoke before, you mentioned that there are many critical components and key environmental activities hidden in the environmental markets value chains. So transport certification area being one example. So how are you dealing with these data gaps on your side? Yes, so I do think that um, uh, it comes really down to uh, very deep fundamental analysis. Looking at the, uh, the value chains, talking with the companies that are the, uh, for example, electric vehicle manufacturers and understanding who their suppliers are. So there is a lot of detective work. This is something that we have at Impact been doing for more than 20 years, is really try to get into the depths of the value chains uh, at, a, at a great uh, detail to really understand what the companies are, what are those critical components, what are the components that uh, most uh, companies, important companies within a value chain are using and uh, what are their peers, et cetera. These are the kinds of questions we are asking uh, companies in, the, in, those, uh, in those areas. But as mentioned, it is not just about understanding perhaps the critical components, but it is also about, for instance, um, how, uh, how safe, if you want, uh, are these sort of uh, uh, components from uh, increased competition. In other words, what do barriers to entry look like? Uh, is there enough innovation, enough specialization of these particular components so that they will be the leading ones and the winning ones and the perhaps dominating ones 
uh, also uh, further in the future. There are many very interesting uh, and high growth areas within environmental markets that uh, are not particularly easy investments because they are very commoditized, they are um, very low barriers to entry. And these are areas that we would be more careful about and be, uh, be perhaps even avoiding in some cases. What are these areas, if you don't mind me asking? Yes, yeah, so it could be, for example, um, technologies around the um, electric vehicle batteries, or it could be within uh, solar panels, for example. These are the types of technologies that are very commoditized, not particularly differentiated or having um, at all high barriers to entry. Mm -hmm. And when we speak about uh, hidden value chains, um, so what are the things that are most commonly ignored in your view in the market when it comes to that? Well, I think us being a sort of uh, a specialist asset management, looking at these types of uh, markets and environmental uh, solutions, I think it is just simply, you know, not really going into the detail of the value chains. That is the... Uh, uh, the sort of uh, main obstacle perhaps and you know that could be that could be an obstacle of uh, resource it could be an obstacle of time or or really knowledge uh, I think a lot of investors have of course um, identified for example electric vehicles as being a great opportunity and growth area etc uh, but without going into that level of detail of uh, what those underlying value chains look like and what the components are. And I think when we think about, for example, the um, EU green taxonomy, it is perhaps a little bit of a concern whether these types of uh, more hidden components and critical um, solutions within uh, that uh, electric vehicle uh, value chain, whether these types of activities, sectors and companies will really be recognized as uh, the critical components and enablers. Of this uh, of this sector, are they talking about like production of lithium batteries in this case, or is it something else as well? No, I think those kinds of things are very well understood, and those are precisely the areas that are mm. more commoditized, etc., and not particularly interesting. Um, and obviously, from an ESG perspective, um, uh, the sort of battery manufacturing also has a lot of issues, um, whether it is. Uh, already the, the mining of some of these critical uh, substances that are required for the, the EU batteries. So that would be less interesting. But again, it could be around, you know, the types of uh, components like the transducers that, uh, uh, that are converting energy from one form to another in those and providing the signals that are required for an electric vehicle to function. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, themes that became even more urgent now than before following the riots in the US and the death of George Floyd is obviously how to tackle racism when it comes to investments and can ESG investing at all help with this theme? So in your view, is there a way for ESG investing to uh, help with this issue specifically? Yes, absolutely. I absolutely do think so. And I think we can, you know, we should all do our our role and all have our um, uh, we all have our role in this and, and understanding the existing biases and us all seeking to be much more inclusive in our everyday lives but i think there are uh, two main avenues for uh, 
helping this uh, situation and improving the situation as investors. And of course, the first one is, is through um, engagement uh, with our companies and taking these kinds of aspects into account uh, uh, really fundamentally in our company analysis and then again uh, engaging with our companies on those kinds of, of topics. And it could be, for instance, around uh, companies' gender, racial, ethnic diversity on their boards uh, and in their executive management teams. It could be around engaging on disclosure of their workforce composition. What do their new hires look like? What are the sort of, um, uh, what is the demographic, if you want, of, of new hires? and uh, but also the attrition and turnover across gender, race, and ethnicity. We also really like to see proactive goals and targets to increase, uh, for example, gender and racial diversity, particularly at the senior leadership levels, and whether there are any goals uh, that are linked to executive compensation along those lines. We look for programs, for example, to develop a diverse uh, talent pipeline uh, and very targeted recruiting, for instance, partnerships with uh, professional or specific affinity networks. Uh, we find educational sort of sponsorships as well as uh, internal efforts such as uh, mentoring, uh, leadership development programs that are geared towards uh, underrepresented groups as being really key. And finally, I think something that uh, investors can look can look at and should look at is, for example, the commitments of companies to pay equity and the disclosure of the pay equity data and efforts uh, to close uh, the sort of identified pay gaps by both uh, race but also gender. So I think, of course, these kinds of engagements and um, dialogues can be then further amplified by investors working in collaboration with other investors and organizations. But the second area is really to take all these good processes and uh, practices and targets and programs into our own companies as well. And I think um, uh, there is a lot that uh, the investment industry and investment community and investment firms can do in this, in this regard. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to, again, gender and um, representation, equality, um, what, what, like, did you ever have an opportunity to result in a positive impact when engaging with companies? So I'm just kind of looking for practical examples of how you were engaging with companies and maybe if there was a positive outcome, what was it? Yes. So one of our focus areas when it comes to diversity has been Asian companies where uh, diversity has, of course, been relatively poor. And uh, I would perhaps highlight particularly Japan as being a market where uh, gender diversity has been, uh, has been very, very low indeed. And so a number of years ago, we started uh, engaging with uh, some of our a Asian, but particularly Japanese companies on this topic. And I must say, I personally thought it was one of those sort of uh, forever projects uh, for us, that it would be very difficult and, uh, um, and uh, very long term to get any results. But it has actually been very, very interesting, particularly the companies that uh, are very uh, keen to see themselves at the forefront of uh, ESG and sustainability. Uh, I think they were surprised, uh, sort of, really surprised to, to have 
to have the question around diversity from impacts and other investors perhaps as well. And um, the first reaction was very much um, well for Japanese companies to have um, a, fem a, a board member, you would have to have been a senior management team member for the last 25, 30, 30 years. And very few women have been for the last 25, 30 years in management, uh, senior management teams in Japan. So there's a practical difficulty there, they, they said. We then uh, asked the companies to think about broader pools of talent, for example, within academia, and consider those types of avenues uh, for identifying uh, more diverse uh, talent. And what has been really great was, was that several of these companies that we have engaged with uh, have actually um, introduced their first uh, management team members uh, being females, but also uh, board members. And what has been very interesting to note is that many of them actually do represent academia. So I think this was one of the big surprises for me. I, I didn't think we would get out positive outcomes so quickly. Um, but I also felt that this was probably one of the, uh, uh, one of those questions that uh, the companies had not necessarily had uh, genuinely, they seem surprised. So it really just uh, reminds us as investors that uh, we need to ask questions uh, and not just assume that this is something that is very difficult to achieve and uh, certainly someone else has already asked a question and, uh, and it doesn't seem to happen. Uh, we can actually really get great outcomes through thoughtful dialogue and uh, uh, and. Uh, you know, having, having good processes in place to also come back to these questions and not just ask them once, but uh, have good follow-up and follow-on, but also back up our, our questions with, um, for example, academic research, showing why, why we think this is a very important aspect for the company to, to take on and adopt. Mm -hmm. Well, Asia is a very clear-cut example when it comes to gender representation. Have you ever had to engage on racial or ethnical representation at all on boards and just generally the policies of the companies in that regard? So we have been, when we talk about um, diversity, uh, especially when it comes to Western companies, we don't, we don't typically talk just about gender diversity, but about broader diversity. So this is definitely a broader agenda. And I think with the, uh, the sort of the situation uh, that is ongoing right now, I think it's really open everyone's eyes to this. And I think we will be, we and many others will be probably much, much more focused on the specific question around uh, uh, ethnicity, et cetera, in, in, uh, as a driver for, for improved diversity as well. There are some challenges, however. Uh, for example, in different regions, uh, there are different definitions of uh, what uh, ethnicity might mean, etc. So it's also something that is uh, harder to find on data, etc. So there are some practical uh, uh, challenges with, uh, with, this, with, uh, with the sort of ethnic and racial type diversity. That doesn't mean that it's not important. It's very important and something we will uh, absolutely continue engaging with.
It's like the, the rest of uh, the whole ESG debate is just a lot about uh, kind of drawing the lines in the sand almost because you don't really have clear cut definitions and then you have as a company that engages with investments you need to decide first for yourself and then explain it to your investment companies um, what that means for you and why it's, it is important. Is that correct? Absolutely. And we do find that uh, the more we can show um, empirical evidence of, uh, uh, of what we are asking for, why that makes sense for the company, why it makes sense for their uh, you know, financial success and their operational success or for their level of innovation and improved dialogue within the firm, the better. That's what we always try to use uh, as, the, uh, as the sort of uh, uh, underpinning of our engagements. And when you look back uh, at how many months we had of 2020, what was the biggest engagement success uh, that you can refer to? Yes. Um, over the last few years, we have been very, very focused on physical climate risk analysis and engagement. And that makes sense for us because um, while we at impacts do not have a lot of exposure to uh, sort of the transition type climate risks. We don't have uh, uh, fossil fuel reserves, et cetera. Um, but no one on the other hand is shielded from extreme climate events or physical climate risk. So that has been a big area of, of focus for us. And we have uh, developed our own model uh, to analyze uh, locally specific asset level um, uh, physical climate risk. And the objective for us in this analysis is really to understand the exposures of companies to uh, severe extreme climate events now and in the future, raise awareness of these issues to the companies in question, and really bring these risks to the top levels of uh, their organizations and the management teams and get these topics uh, to the risk registries of the companies. And ideally, we would also like to start talking about what might be the sort of risk mitigation uh, approaches uh, for the companies. So over the last year, we have uh, engaged extensively with one uh, Chinese water utility. And uh, we started by asking for their plant location data. And the company was perhaps a little bit reluctant to provide that uh, to us. You know, there's, you know, interestingly enough, although it is quite mundane type uh, data, uh, it is not the type of data that investors or anyone else has, uh, has readily access to. And that's absolutely key uh, for this type of uh, physical climate risk um, uh, analysis and, uh, uh, and research. We then analyzed the, the plant level uh, data uh, through the through the model and uh, presented it to the company who started becoming interested and decided to send us the rest of the data for their um, for their companies as well and uh, that provided us with the possibility of understanding really the level of exposure of their individual plants to physical climate risk and found that uh, roughly eight percent of their plants were uh, quite severely exposed to water stress uh, in the future. 
And we presented these results uh, to the company and uh, there was certainly a lot of uh, awareness that, that was raised. And uh, I think it's, it sort of uh, was an eye opener in many ways for the company to see, okay, this is what investors are looking at. And this is very, very interesting actually for us as well. So this data has now uh, got it, found its way to the top levels of, uh, of the management team. And the next question there for, for the management team is to see how do we manage uh, these risks? How do we start mitigating some of these exposures that we have in roughly 8% of our, uh, of our funds? Mm -hmm. No, that's definitely very interesting. It's again, almost uh, educational work you're doing there. So yeah, no, definitely a lot, a lot to think about. Um, and yeah, thank you very much, Lisa, for joining us today. Uh, very interesting, thought-provoking conversation. Great, thank you so much.